Podcasting from the heartland of America in the state of Missouri, this is Recovering Faith, a show about increasing or regaining faith, trusting God when it doesn't appear to make sense to do so, and coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. I am your host, Gene Curl, and I wholeheartedly welcome you to this show. Hello and welcome back to Recovering Faith. If I sound a little bit different, because uh, I'm not feeling well and I have a sore throat, so yeah, there's that. Anyhow, uh, this is, I, I believe, episode 27, and I'm calling this episode The Slippery Slope of Doubt. Because if any of you have ever slipped down a slippery slope, then you know how fast things can go south once you lose your footing. In fact, when I was in college at Idaho State University, I later went to school at University of University of Nebraska-Lincoln. But anyhow, when I was in college at Idaho State University, I drove the city bus for the city of Pocatello, Idaho. And uh, I typically drove an older bus, but uh, uh, and that's this older bus it had the retarder on a switch. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a retarder is, it's basically an engine or transmission brake that helps slow the vehicle down without using the actual brakes, and it's commonly used on heavy vehicles like buses and semi-trucks. Anyhow, uh, one snowy winter day, I was assigned one of the brand new buses, and just about the time I got to the top of the hill, which is a really steep hill, a car pulled out in front of the bus. Well, I wasn't going very fast, and so I decided not to hit the brakes because I was afraid that the bus would slide. So instead, I opted to just remove my foot from the accelerator and let the vehicle slow down on its own. Of course, since it was not the bus I usually drove, I forgot that the new buses had uh, the retarder activated by releasing the accelerator instead of by applying the brake. See, the the, uh, older buses... You could, uh, there's a switch, you could turn the retarder off, uh, you could turn it on, or have it on when you hit the brake. Well, with the new bus, you couldn't turn it off, and as soon as you completely released the accelerator, the retarder came on. This, these buses were designed in California where there's no snow or ice, and the idea is to save the brakes, and somehow they think it'll also save fuel. Since I forgot about the retarder, I completely removed my foot from the accelerator, and the retarder came on, hard, which caused the bus to slide. After spinning in a complete circle, the bus slid sideways down the entire length of the hill. Luckily, we didn't hit anything, and no one was hurt, though judging by the smell, at least one passenger had to change his or her shorts. Why did I tell this story, you ask? Well, partially because it involved a slippery slope but also because I always like to tell bus stories since I have so many of them and since I drove a bus for over 11 years. I started driving a bus when I was in college and I said I'm just going to drive a bus until something better comes along. And so I wound up driving a city bus for five years and then I drove a party bus and I drove a university bus between campuses in Nebraska. And then I wound up driving a tour bus And uh, in all, I wound up driving a bus 11 years. So by the time I was 
by the time I was uh, in my mid-30s, I had driven a bus for a third of my life. So, anyhow. Um, I recently watched a documentary on Jim Jones, the infamous cult leader that forced hundreds of people to kill themselves when he realized he was losing his power. And it occurred to me that Jim Jones and those like him must have been inspired by the devil. On the program, one of Jim Jones' surviving sons said that his father didn't want to go alone and wanted to take as many people with him as possible. And that got me to thinking. The devil knows he's lost. At this point, he has to know the game is up and there's no possible for, way for him to win. But misery loves company and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. You see, the devil knows that if he can cause people to commit atrocities in the name of God, that it will not only cause people in that generation to lose faith, but also many generations to come. Jim Jones started out as a Bible-preaching pastor who taught and lived the Word of God. But when he got a little taste of power, he got addicted and quickly and uh, quickly devolved into a, bat, into a madman whose only concern was keeping and growing his power and influence, regardless of the cost. In the beginning, Jones likely brought people to Jesus, but later on he not only took people away from Jesus, but he also took away their very lives. Of course, Jim Jones was not the only notorious person who claimed to be Christian and poisoned the waterhole, so to speak. There have been a lot of televangelists and a lot of cult leaders who have caused multitudes to question their faith by lying, caring about money more than people, preaching one thing and living another, cheating people, and otherwise being despicable and reprehensible human beings, all the while claiming to be a special, special messenger of Jesus Christ, and they claim to have a special relationship with him. People look at these horrible people who claim to be Christians and think, if that's what Christianity is all about, I want nothing to do with it. Jesus said, it's impossible, but that offense has come. But it is better to have a millstone tied about your neck and cast into the sea than to offend one of these who believe in me. In other words, we will all do things that might cause others to question their faith in God, but we should strive not to cause offense, especially intentional uh, offenses, and especially for personal gain. And causing someone to doubt is not looked upon kindly by God. I would imagine that when Jim Jones, Joseph Smith, David Crash, and all those who led multitudes astray found out just how true Jesus' statement was once they passed from this life. And those who lead people astray and haven't passed yet will learn how true it is when they die if they don't correct their actions while they still have a chance. Even for those of us who have not had our faith shaken by horrible, famous men, well, horrible people, famous or otherwise, who claim to be men of God, uh, experience small things that cause a, a loss of faith on some level. In the most part, doubt is insidious and starts off small and harmless, but if it's allowed to grow, it can become devastating and difficult, if not impossible, to overcome. It's a lot easier to lose faith than it is to maintain faith, and all who lose faith do so by degrees. Few people go to bed as a devout believer and wake up in the morning as an atheist. The process begins slowly, and once we start to compromise on our beliefs and our standards, it is a lot easier to be rocked by the storms of life. Jesus knew that trials would come, and he warned us about it when he said, 
Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. I do not, uh, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. When everything is going according to plan, and into smooth sailing, it's easy to believe in God. But when things start to go wrong, and when the storm is bearing down upon us and driving our vessel far away from our goals and dreams, we despair and give in to doubt. Usually doubt doesn't start off as serious doubt, but it's like a volunteer tree that springs up beside the house. And it's harmless at first, but if we allow it to grow, it becomes a huge crack in the foundation, and sometimes even destroying the house. Doubts are natural, and if I said that I never have any doubts anymore, that I would be dishonest. But we should take care of them and not allow them to destroy our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Allowing ourselves to entertain doubts is a slippery slope. And as I said a few minutes ago, no one goes to bed a stalwart Christian and gets up the next day void of faith. It happens by degree. We may start off agreeing with some professor who says that some aspect of the Bible such as the Exodus, can't be true because there is no supporting evidence. And once the door is open, it can lead to throwing out the entire Bible. Every year, more evidence for the Bible is found, and just because we have not found evidence for some aspect of the Bible does not mean that it doesn't exist. When we compromise our standard or our faith, for whatever reason, we are starting the slow descent into unbelief. I'm not saying that we should not question anything, because as history has adequately demonstrated, people who never question anything are more likely to wind up in boxcars on their way to gas chambers, or in the line for the Kool-Aid vat with a gun trained on them. What I am saying, however, is that part of faith is trusting God when we don't have all the answers, and when it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to do so. Just because we don't have all the answers doesn't mean that God is lacking or that there is cause to doubt his existence. People, uh, people often overlook proof for God because it doesn't meet their predetermined criteria for evidence. A lot of doubt starts off with a simple statement we heard in class, such as there is no evidence for the Great Flood, or something we heard or saw on television, or some comment from a friend, or an article we read in a magazine. The devil wants nothing more than for every one of us to go to hell with him, and he will do anything to get us there, including causing us to lose our faith in God. We don't have to do any great sin to go to hell. We just have to not believe in Jesus. When we hear something about Christianity we don't understand, of course we should check it out, but we should not immediately assume the worst and throw out our beliefs because of a simple doubt. One of the things that causes doubt is when we cherry-pick the Bible and believe what suits us, but ignore or downplay the rest. If we believe in the parts of the Bible, if we believe parts of the Bible are true and worthy, but that other parts of the Bible are not worthy of consideration, as they are just the words of man, then we are opening the door to a complete and utter loss of faith. We can't take the Bible piecemeal and think that we are faithful. Either we believe it or we're not Christian. It may take some people more time and more prayer to get to that point than others, but believing God is exactly who he says he is has to happen in order for us to truly follow him. Pastors are people whose job it is to help others have a relationship with God, but they are people nonetheless. And as people, they are not perfect or even close to it. When we hear a pastor say something we don't agree with, 
or do something that is questionable, we should not let his actions or her actions, as the case may be, cause us to doubt God. Even the greatest heroes in the Bible, the people that God used in the mightiest ways, were imperfect people and did things that we should not emulate. Even small deviations can cause huge changes if they are not corrected. If you aim a rocket at the moon, but after takeoff, the flight trajectory is changed by a fraction of a degree, the rocket will pass the moon by many miles. I'm not one of those math people who will go through the trouble of figuring out how many miles a half a degree would get us off course in the 238,855 miles between Earth and the moon. But to suffice it to say that even a small deviation would cause the rocket to miss the moon by a long ways. Also, it is of note that if we miss it by a mile, we might as well have missed it by a million miles because the result is exactly the same. It doesn't matter if we missed heaven by an inch or if we missed heaven by a million miles. We still missed heaven and the result is the same. If we fail to read the Bible one day, it's easier to not read it the next, and the next, and the next, and so on and so forth. If we skip church one week, it's easier to skip it the next. And the longer we are away, the easier it is to stay away, and the more difficult it is to convince ourselves to return. If we skip our prayers one day, then we are more likely to make it a habit and stop praying altogether. A failure to pray is usually one of the first steps and an early indicator of a lack of faith. And it's extremely easy to neglect prayer and go from praying multiple times per day to not praying at all. Once we skip prayer one day, we are on the downward slide toward no prayer at all. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't think that we have time, and other times we don't pray because we don't think we will get a favorable answer, or any answer at all. Sometimes we fail to pray because we feel that we are not deserving of God's grace. By the way, we are not deserving of God's grace, and that is why it is grace. If it was a just reward, then we would be earning our way to heaven and would not need God. But we will never be good enough, and we are saved by God's grace and his love, even though we can never deserve it or earn it. And that is the true meaning of grace. When we compromise our standards, it causes a loss, a loss of faith, and even small compromises to our standards or faith can have monumental effects, just like the analogy of the rocket and the moon I used earlier. There is a popular story of a man who pitched his tent in the desert, and when the sandstorms came up, his camel begged to be allowed to stick his nose into the tent so that he didn't have to breathe the dust. And then after some time, he begged to be allowed to put his head farther in so he didn't get sand in his eyes. And then he begged to, to be allowed to have his head in farther so he could keep his, the sand out of his ears. And in small degrees, the camel worked his way into the tent, and eventually the camel was inside the tent, and the man was outside in the sand and in the wind. There is a song by the singer Meatloaf where he says he would do anything for love. But then he mentions a few things, and he says that he won't... He says... Uh, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. A lot of us make the claim that we would do anything for God, but we won't believe in God when things don't go according to our plan, or when we hear some claim against some aspect of the Bible that has little or nothing to do with the validity or the message the Bible shares. We often let small things erode our faith until there is nothing left. 
A single grain of sand that gets into the cylinder can entirely run the engine. Sometimes it doesn't matter how many faith-affirming events have happened in our lives. When one thing goes wrong, especially if it is a big thing, we let it bother us and our faith suffers. And when our faith suffers, so does our relationship with God. Even though the apostles were with Jesus every day and saw him do many miracles, they were still taken with doubt once in a while. And even though Thomas is the one we typically think of when it comes to doubt, all of the apostles doubted from time to time. When the apostles saw Jesus walking on the water, they were scared and they thought he was a ghost or something. But when he called out to them to let them know he was Jesus, they were somewhat calmed and Peter asked to be called out to him. At first, Peter was doing well and his faith in Jesus allowed him to walk on the water. But as soon as he allowed the storm to distract him from the Savior, he started to doubt and he began to sink. And if you recall from later in the Bible, when he jumped off the ship and swam to the shore to get to Jesus, Peter knew how to swim. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountain side by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is the ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hands and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of the place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to, be let, begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Matthew chapter 14, 22 through, 20, uh, 22 through 36 in the New International Version. In order to weather the storms of life, we must keep our eyes on what is important, and nothing is more important than Jesus. I like to tell the story of a corn farmer in Nebraska. His farm was the pride of the county because his rows were always perfect and always so straight. One day the farmer decided it was time to teach his son how to farm, and after teaching him how to use the tractor, he said, Now it's time for you to learn how to make those perfect straight rows that everyone's always bragging about. You pick an object on the other side of the field, and you head straight for it. You don't go right or you don't go left. You just go straight for it. You got that, son? Yeah, I got it, the son said, and, when the, and with that, the farmer went to town to run some errands. When the farmer returned late that evening, and he saw how crooked the rows were, he almost cried. Not only were the rows not straight, but they were not the same width, and some rows crossed over the other rows. 
there were large areas in the center that had not even been plowed. The farmer went out into the field and caught up with the son and said, Shut the tractor up and come down here, son. The son shut off the tractor, climbed down, and followed his father to the edge of the field. The farmer pointed out to the field and said, What happened? I told you to pick a point on the other side of the field and aim right for it. Don't go right and don't go left. I did that, the young man said. Do these rows look straight to you, the farmer asked. No, they don't, but I follow your directions exactly. Then what happened, the farmer asked, a bit flustered. Well, said the young man, the darn cow kept moving. We need to keep our eyes fixed upon something that will never move and will never change, and that is Jesus. It doesn't matter what society does or what society says is acceptable and what is not. The standard set by God doesn't change, and neither does the love and forgiveness that is offered. Jesus doesn't change, so if we are changing to conform to the world, it takes us away from Jesus, and we will follow a Jesus other than the Jesus of the Bible, and that will cause us to lose faith. And faith in anything other than the Jesus of the Bible will not lead to salvation. Despite all of the miracles Peter had witnessed, he still allowed the cares of the world and the storm to cause him to doubt when he tried walking on the water. And that was far from being the only time. When the apostles were rowing furiously against the storm and Jesus was sleeping, they also doubted. And they were a little upset that Jesus was sleeping while they all thought they were going to die. Basically, they were like, Come on, man, we're about to die. And you're just laying there sleeping? Don't you even care that we're all going to die? They seem to have forgotten all the miracles Jesus did and let their fear get the better of them, and they let it overcome their faith. And the Bible says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And that was Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 in the New International Version. Ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink because of the water that gets into them. The smallest boat can survive the worst storm and the biggest waves so long as none of the water gets inside. If a boat starts to take on water, the first thing to do is to find out where it is leaking and try to repair it. And equally important is to get the water out of the vessel by using a bilge pump or a bucket if that's all you've got. If all the water is not removed from a boat, it causes problems including electrical, mold, and rotting wood, all of which are disastrous. When doubt starts to take hold, we need to get rid of those doubts because if not, they will completely kill our faith in God and our relationship with Him. It's okay to not know everything, and I suspect we will not know everything or know how everything works in this life. And a knowledge of all things is not required to be saved, just a faith in God and the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. 
A lot of people have shallow faith, and they abandon ship as soon as they encounter something they don't understand. In their mindset, if God cannot be rationalized and categorized, then they can't believe in God. A lot of people who claim to believe in God have precisely as much faith as an atheist does. And by that I mean that what they say they believe in in no way impacts the way in which they live their lives. I think one of the big reasons people sin, and sin so frequently, is that their faith is weak. If we convince ourselves that it is okay to do something we know is not okay, we shift the goalpost in the wrong direction, and then it is easier to justify other, th- other sins. The more we sin, the weaker our faith gets, and the weaker our faith gets, the more we sin. It's a cycle, and the two, sin and lack of faith, feed each other and can lead to our destruction. When we sin, our sin makes us reluctant to pray because we don't want to be confronted with our sin, and we're not ready to abandon the sin, and we don't want to be convicted about it. Also, again, many people don't pray when they sin because they don't think they deserve to talk to God, and they don't think God wants to hear from them. But God always wants to hear from you, and is always glad when you speak to Him and ask for His help. When we lose our faith, we also damage our faith. So regaining our faith isn't as easy as just finding our lost keys or sunglasses. Once we allow ourselves to believe that perhaps Jesus isn't all that he claimed to be or that the Bible is faulty, it takes a lot to convince ourselves otherwise. Doubt causes a wound, and it is a wound that is difficult to heal without help from Jesus. And honestly, I am often like the father who came to Jesus and asked for his son to be healed. But when Jesus said anything is possible, if he, had, if he believed, the father said, I believe. And then, shortly after, he said, Lord, help my unbelief. I often know that my faith is not where it should be, but I still have enough faith to ask Jesus to help me with my faith. Jesus wants all of us to be saved, and he wants all of us to come to him. And he understands when, when we have doubts. It's natural to have doubts, but we shouldn't let these doubts destroy our faith. And when we have doubts, I think a better approach, instead of trying to find out what uh, the irreligious people say about these doubts, when we have doubts, we should go to God in prayer and we should ask for help with our faith and ask him to give us answers. And... I don't, God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way we think he will, but God does answer our prayers. And, well, that's, that's all I've got for this episode. So, uh, I do pray for my, pray for my listeners, and, and I pray that, uh, God will be with you and that he will strengthen your faith, and that when he strengthens your faith, that you will strengthen the faith of others. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe so you never miss an episode. A new episode goes live every Wednesday. If you have questions, comments, have suggestions for a future episode, or if you would like to be a guest, you can contact me through my website, genecurl.com. Remember, it's gene like the unit of biological heredity and curl like a curl on your head. Please leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever streaming service you use. 
God bless you and keep you till the next episode.